0: light of spring break, um, kind of the weirdness that I feel is is the fact that what I I kind of want to say to everybody is have a great time. Like what we're doing tonight is giving away like $50 gift cards to stuff and like just chill out and and, and it's like kind of heavy stuff and like we're talking about Lent and so the two things you might want to do over spring break is make a ton of excuses and complain a lot Um, and we're like, this is what we're giving up, you know? And so like everything's difficult (laughs) Um, and my prayer is... That kind of some of the stuff that we sang is true that, like, that it's on our knees that we find life And, and um, that it's Actually in the passage of scripture we're reading tonight I don't know how much I'll be talking about this During um, the rest of the sermon But Jesus says that the commandment of God Is eternal life um, and, and I don't know if we expect that I, I, I think in our, in our sin In our darkness um, We expect obedience and truth and, and that kind of stuff to be more constricting um, But quite frankly the opposite is true um, that in obeying Christ, we find the most freedom. Uh, C.S. Lewis said it's in, it's in God's compulsion that humans find their most freedom. There's mystery to that, of course, but the experience bears it out. In any case, uh, <laughs> if you don't understand what that means, you're probably not gonna understand anything else either. So uh, thanks for being here, um, but we can pray about all this. Uh, we've been going through the Gospel of John this semester, um, and, and tonight we're gonna be looking at John's conclusion to the first half of the book. Um, so I said that kind of last week with his raising, of Jesus's raising of Lazarus to the dead. But it turns out there's another chapter where he talked a lot. Jesus did, and I was like, we'll skip that. We'll go to Jesus washing people's feet. But I I couldn't shake John chapter 12. It's a pretty loaded chapter, um, and it serves as this sort of summary in John's book of of of, uh, of Jesus's public ministry for a couple of years. He was. Um, teaching and healing and, and doing miracles. This is a summary of it, right? And when we get back from spring break, just so you know kind of where we're going, um, we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit. Uh, Jesus says he's taken off and the disciples are like, yo, what? Uh, and, and we talk about the Holy Spirit. Um, that's a summary. Okay, anyway. Uh, then we're going to take a one week break from John and we're going to talk about money, actually. Um, which I had, Kirsten and I were talking earlier this semester and we just had this sense that like, I've had this experience it, with my church in town and other stuff too, that a lot of people have either come from a context which never talks about money or they, um, they're very manipulative and talk about it a ton. Um, and there's so few places where somebody just with I think some health and transparency talks about money. So by God's grace... Um, And with his help and mercy, um, we'll try to do that here. Um, It doesn't need to be a hidden thing. Why do Christians give, and why do they even care about that sort of thing? And why should churches talk about it at all if they should? And and so we're going to talk about that. So if you're interested, come back a couple weeks after spring break. Um, And then we're going to be talking about uh, the crucifixion and the resurrection and the week before and after Easter. And then finally, our identities and the future. Uh, which are based out of the last chapter of John, and that'll finish up our semester. So that's where we're going. That may be helpful for you to just kind of park your expectations there. Um, and if you're reading along with us, um, we'll be reading through the last half of the book of John. Um, okay, so tonight it might be helpful to frame our sermon as a bit of a summary statement, that, that tonight is is sort of a conclusion of what's taken place in the first 12 chapters of the gospel of John during Jesus' public ministry. And I want to start by telling you a little bit about my own journey of faith. Um, (laughs) I don't know how intense this is going to be. It's a long time ago for me, but whatever. Uh, When I began to find Jesus pretty intriguing, like I'd heard about him. I didn't really grow up in church. I went to church a handful of times with my grandparents or something. Um, I went to like this uh, church camp one time because this cute girl went. And we got to camp and like shoot things, and it was pretty fun. Um, I don't remember any... Bible stuff, but that was cool. Um, but, but outside of that, I, I didn't have much interest or intrigue um, in, in the person and teachings of Jesus. Um, and, and when this happened, um, I was 16, and I just had sex with my girlfriend for the second time. It was the second time I ever had sex. Um, and it really messed with me. And it messed with me not because of my religious convictions. There, there might have been something there. I don't, I don't really know, but I wasn't aware of anything that was there religious-wise. Um, uh, my parents, um, they, they didn't really care. Um, this girl didn't really care. I can get into more of that maybe. But, but because my parents got pregnant with me when they were teenagers and they weren't married. My mom got pregnant with me at 17 and she wasn't married. Um, somewhere along the way, I picked up this idea that the messiness of my life was all rooted <laughs> uh, in undisciplined sex. That My whole life was kind of a mess because uh, my mom and dad, biological mom and dad, had sex when they weren't married, and it was just a moment of passion, and whoops, they got pregnant, uh, and that started this, this series, you know, of events, right? That's actually not true, <laughs> I actually think. I mean, well, sorry, they did actually have sex. I'm not a miracle baby in that kind of way, but um, they, did, they did actually have sex. I, I mean that, like, all of the, 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 the sequence of events which followed— I don't believe are primarily rooted in this one instance. And like from that point forward, well, the rest of history is just d- determined by, by what happened in that moment. But, but, um, but somewhere in there, what, what happened to me is I witnessed so much divorce. I moved all across the country. I was never stable as a kid. So many people in and out of my life that at about 16 years old, or probably earlier than that, but that was this moment where I, I sort of, uh, where I had sex with this girl. And um, uh, That was this moment when I I realized that I had pinned so much garbage in my life on this one decision my mom and dad had made when they were 17 and 18 years old. So I told myself, even though this was totally inaccurate, I told myself, self, um, you will not have sex until you're married. (laughs) Um, You will stay married. You will be a good father and a good husband. You will be totally in control of your life, and it's going to be good. That's what I, what, that was not a religious conviction. That was, I'm not going to put somebody else through what I went through, and I think the way to do that is these things, okay? Something like that anyway. And so when I had sex with this girlfriend at the time, it was like a mess for me. She didn't understand why I was so messed up about it for her. She didn't really care. It was not a big deal. My parents didn't care. My, my dad and stepmom, they didn't care when they found out. They told me, if you love somebody, you're probably going to have sex, so chill out. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> chill out is a message I get a lot. Um and, and I, was a, I was a mess because I told myself I would not do this, and I did. That's why I was a mess. I said I wasn't going to do this, and I did. And that was the first time I remember thinking. The opportunity had come up a ton before, but that was the first time I remember actually thinking, maybe I am not strong enough to do all that I want to do. I can't live up to my own standards, and I was a wreck. And somewhere in those thoughts, it occurred to me that God might be able to help. That if he were real, that was up for debate a little bit for me. Maybe he could help me be a stronger man, a better man, a good father, a good husband. Maybe he could help me keep my word. And this idea went a lot farther than just my plans for like romance or family. I began to wonder if God could help me make decisions, better decisions, right? Clarity, what should I do? I wondered if God could help me get friends, could teach me how to be a good friend, could help me with my finances. And so I started to lean into that and see what essentially what kind of help God could offer. You with me? That was kind of when I I was at 16, I started like pondering these thoughts, like maybe God could could offer some real help and I was interested, right? But instead of just helping, uh, because it it turns out that he really can do all of that um, and he really does have help to offer, but instead of just helping, what I, what I discovered um, in my experience, played this out, I guess, is that he began to just reveal darkness in me. So instead of just helping with my self-control in romance, he started to show me the idolatry that I had in dating. Instead of just helping me with friendship, he began to show me that I'm really self-centered and that undermines any genuine friendship. Instead of just helping me with me with money... Uh, He began to show me how controlled I am by it and by the lust for it. It's like dark stuff. It's really dark stuff. Like I turned to Jesus for help, and what I found is Him showing me all this darkness in my life. I know it's possible to read the scriptures um, or hear them, but not really understand them. And so maybe you don't know this, but Jesus turns up a lot of dirt. He just comes through and He turns up a ton of dirt. He calls out darkness. He reveals it. And we don't like this very much. We don't like this about Jesus. Maybe the verses quoted uh, at the bottom of, like, email signatures or the things that you see on Facebook walls or tattooed on bodies, like, they tell us of the kind of Jesus that's gentle, right? Compassionate Jesus. And those are good and true statements. I hope. I hope people are using them in the correct context and with the way they're intended to be used by the original authors. And Jesus is very kind and gentle. That's true. But there is a reason people walked away from him and tried to arrest him and eventually killed him. And it wasn't because he said, you guys are doing great. That's not why everybody It's not why you kill somebody, you know? I don't know if you guys have killed people. I hope not, but that's some darkness Jesus might want to reveal. But, um, uh, but there, there's a reason that people pushed against him, right? Because what he said he is or who he said he is and what he did, it's really offensive to us. It's offensive to the darkness in our lives. It's offensive to all of the vain efforts that we put forth to try to establish ourselves in this world. And we don't like that very much. We don't like darkness being revealed to us. And I, th- I think... I suspect there are two reasons for this, primarily. The reason we don't like darkness being revealed. The first is because we don't have a lot of hope. Some of the darkness we see in our lives and in this world, with some of that, it's really hard. It's a struggle to believe that there's any hope for it. Think about some of these huge problems that for some of us in this room, we might think about quite a bit. World hunger, sex trafficking, the outrageous bureaucracy of politics. (laughs) Like, Like, when we struggle to hope for those things, do you find sometimes that it's hard to see resolution? It's hard to know how we can actually make life happen in these places of darkness and death. Jesus would make a comment like, the poor will always be with you, and some of us fight against that. We're like, no, we can fix all poverty in the world if only we would just do this or that or the other. But then we have these moments when we realize that it's really hard. It can be hard to muster up hope sometimes in the face of darkness. And if we're really honest, sometimes we struggle for, to hope for what's inside of us as well. Is it possible for me to actually think different about myself one day? Is it even possible for me not to struggle so much with what I struggle with one day? Is there any way the story of my family growing up can ever make some sense and be made right? Whether it's external or internal things, darkness in the world, sometimes it's really hard for us to, to have hope that these things can be resolved or fixed. And if it's not possible, like, if hope doesn't seem realistic or possible, then why face it? Why not just close our eyes to it and ignore it because it's just going to exhaust us to no end? So some of us don't like darkness being turned up, I think, because we don't have hope. But I think there's a, almost a darker reason why some of us don't like darkness um, revealed. Um, and I think the other reason is because we don't, we don't like to face this because of what it might mean um, for us and with regards to our identities, so if the first instance that I just talked about with not having hope is, is really all about victimhood, like we look at the victims in the world that are suffering from tragedies and hardship, and we feel for that, and we want there to, 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 to something good to come from it, but we don't know if there's really hope there. Or we look inside of ourselves and wonder, as we are enslaved or, in, or victimized by certain experiences in our lives or whatever, we might struggle to come up with hope. But that's not the only thing we experience, because sometimes what the darkness is, is that we're the perpetrators or aggressors of darkness in this world. We're not just people who experience wrong, but we're people who bring about wrong. Our selfishness, it turns out, actually hurts others. There is nothing in this world that actually just affects you. That's not the way it works. Our indulgence and our consumption actually affects others. It costs others. Our anger, our laziness, our lust, our addictions, victimize others around us. And if that is some of the darkness which exists inside of each of us, then having it revealed is terrifying. There's this Russian guy named Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Will you guys say that name with me? Solzhenitsyn. I just feel better about messing it up when you say it, so thanks. Um he's this Russian dude and he said this listen to this quote y'all I posted this on Facebook a few years back so if you're ever bored one day you can scroll through that uh, if you want to find it but here's what he says because you're not going to spell his last name Um, he says if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them if only listen to this But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? Who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? If at once God got rid of everyone who brought harm on others, who among us would be saved? If God cut lust and selfishness out of all of our lives, how much would be left? This is why we don't like to confront or admit darkness in our lives, because we struggle to see hope or we're afraid of what it might mean about us. And you see, sort of a side note, you see why faith must always be understood as a gift. No one figures this stuff out or does the math. No one comes to Jesus on their own. No one can resist the offense of him without God first giving them a degree of hope or a degree of courage to fight the bindings which trap us, right? Hopelessness and fear, which are these great chains that bind us in the dark. And Christ comes. The gospel of John actually begins kind of this way, right? He comes shining his light, casting it into the depths of the dark, exposing everything there. Not though I think we fear this, not to magnify our brokenness and fear, that if Christ's light shined upon our lives and in this world, that we might suspect that the reason he's doing it is just to find us out. Friends, he knows. You're not hidden from him. He doesn't shine his light into the darkness to magnify our brokenness and fear. He shines his light into the darkness to break them, to break the chains which hold us and bring us into the light. You know how he primarily does that? How does Christ shine his light and break chains of hopelessness and fear? How does he do that? By showing us who God is. For all of us know in our bones, if not in our mind, that we will answer for our lives one day. It's why father wounds and dad dynamics play such a huge role for every single person in this room. We will all stand before God one day. Because of the darkness we live in, we have such deep fears of God's anger, of his sadness, of his abandonment. And Jesus comes into that very darkness of our world with his light, and he shows us who God is, kind, merciful, gracious, serving, loving. It's hard to believe because we've been listening to other voices for so much of our lives. He disarms our fear by showing us who God is. And we can talk at length about what Jesus did in various events or actions, and we should do that. We'll be doing that hopefully over the season of Lent all the way up until Easter. But all of what God did, all of what Jesus did is an expression of who he is. And who Jesus is, is God. This is actually the summary of his public ministry. Jesus showing us who the Father is and the Father's heart for us. That's it. We're gonna look at the, our main text the, actually right now, but would you just pray with me first before we look at the text, okay? Father, um, we can't get past the hopelessness um, that, we pro- that many of us have probably become um, numb to or, or accustomed to. Maybe it's a normal for us. We can't get past fear that we have. We probably can't even, don't even feel like we can afford it without your help. As we look at your words, um, at your son's words, Father, may they be a light shining into the darkness of our minds and our hearts. May your spirit open eyes and ears and hearts and minds to understand what you're saying. Would you keep me from heresy? Would you have mercy on us? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts and our minds be holy and pleasing to you. A rock and a redeemer. Amen. So would you open your Bibles to to John chapter 12. It's the fourth book in the New Testament, chapter 12. We're looking at the end of chapter 12, right before a very famous scene that many of you know. It's the night Jesus had dinner with his disciples and he broke bread and offered wine and washed their feet and gave them a new command. We're looking at the the section just before that. And we're gonna read through it real quick once and then I'm gonna read through it again just to point out a few things, okay? Um, John chapter 12, verses 44 through 50. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. This is the word of our Lord. And Jesus cried out, we're gonna go back through this real quick, right? Um, and it said, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. This, this cried out notion is, is really important, right? What he's saying here, he intends to go far and wide, he doesn't say this privately or to some small crowd. This is a desperate cry and a plea. We see this coming probably most often in the gospel accounts, this, this word, this idea, from people who are sick and are, Jesus is passing by and they're begging him to heal them, and Jesus with that kind of fervor and passion is crying out. This isn't a secret, he wants to be known. Whoever believes in me believes not in me but in him who sent me. Friend, if you believe in Jesus, You believe in the Father. Not that believing in Jesus helps you believe in the Father. Believing in Him is believing in the Father. And in case there is any doubt in what He means to say, He almost repeats Himself in the next sentence, right? And whoever sees me, sees Him who sent me. So close your eyes. Close your eyes for a second. Who do you imagine you will see after you die? When you show up before the throne of God, what will you find there? If you know Jesus, you know who is on the throne. Jesus will not be pointing to another God. This begins, friends, to brush up against the limits of our imagination and our understanding. I know, but this is what Jesus said. If you see me... Not, you have some idea of what the Father's like. If you see me, that will help you recognize the Father when you see him. That's not what he says. If you see me, you see the Father. He and the Father are one. In case you need permission, you can open your eyes anytime. and in case you still hear Jesus' words, as a little soft, because I think sometimes maybe for some of us who've grown up in, in, with certain like felt board Jesus images or something, um, that, that most of what Jesus says is kind of like, like, we talk about the flood story with like rainbows and not with like mass genocide. Like we don't have pictures of like women and children dying in the water. We, we have rainbows and sheep or something, you know, like we do that. Um, so in case, you, in case you hear this stuff as soft, can you imagine anyone else saying what Jesus just said? Can you imagine if I told you, not that I'm helping you believe in God, but that if you just believe in me, you do believe God. Can you imagine the, the gravity, the intensity with which that lands, right? Or, or imagine if I said this. If you see me, you've seen God. That's what Jesus said. That's the kind of stuff he says. That's what he hammers home in the summary of his public ministry for a couple of years. If you know Jesus, you know the Father, his relationship with the Father, the fact that he is one with the Father is what he wants people to know. And this is the truth, incidentally. Maybe it's not incidental, maybe it's very intentional here. This is the truth which can disarm our fear and speak hope into our hopelessness that God is actually really revealed to us in Jesus. We'll keep going because it's not intense enough, right? 46, I've come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. And this is what he wants to happen. This is what he wants to happen. So he's revealing to us who God is in him. Jesus is showing us God in himself. Why? That by believing in him, we're freed from the darkness of our lives. That's why he came. He says, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Father, forgive us for being harsh with your words and forgetting that you've come to save, not judge. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I've spoken will judge him on the last day. Here's what he's saying. One way or the other, one way or the other, our entire existence hangs upon our response to Jesus. Jesus did not come to judge but to save. But if we reject our Savior, we're accountable to that. Our response is everything. What this means, friends, is that you cannot actually go on forever with your head in the sand. That's what it means. Looking the other way, leaving the phone just to ring and go to voicemail. Either you open your eyes to the light or you remain in darkness. And perhaps because of the gravity of these kinds of claims, Jesus tells us on what authority he's making them. If we didn't hear him say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If we didn't hear him earlier say, I and the Father are one. If you didn't see these moments where people picked up stones to throw at him for blasphemy because he claimed to be God, here he communicates clearly his authority in 49 and 50. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment. What to say and what to speak, and I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say, as the Father has told me. Jesus said and did what the Father told him. Over and over, Jesus doubles down on his relationship with the Father as the primary point of emphasis. And what this means is we don't have to wonder what God's like. That's what this means. Because if we know Jesus, we know God. If Jesus offers mercy and does only what the Father tells him, then the Father offers mercy. If Jesus speaks grace and says only what the Father tells him to say, then the Father speaks grace. If Jesus is loving and seeing him is to see the Father, then the Father is loving. Every reason we have to fear is disarmed by Jesus. And so if we remain in fear, it is only because we haven't looked upon the Son. And if we remain hopeless, it is only because we've rejected him. Okay, that's some really heavy stuff right here at the end of John chapter 12. This is the summary of Jesus' ministry. John parks these teachings of Jesus right here at the very end of, of his public ministry because after this moment, things start to get real intimate. John sort of says, this is Jesus. Now you know who he is, what he's about. You know God through him. And now for the whole rest of the book, let's just look at basically a week and see what God does in Jesus, right? That's the kind of transition that's happening here. So right here at this moment, there's this summary of who Jesus is. The story turns here. Now that Jesus has made clear who he is, demonstrating that he's the Christ and the very image of God for us through the signs and wonders that he did and through the ways that he taught, the rest of the story details what he does for us. Therefore, what God does for us, because if Jesus does it for us, then God's doing it for us. This is what Jesus wants us to see. When we see Jesus offer his life for others, we're invited to know that this is God, that this is how God loves us. We're not just talking about how Jesus loves us and hope God loves us that way too. If we have seen Jesus, we've seen the Father. He is God's self-revelation. Jesus stresses this over and over and over again. Do you know that? Maybe that's too much for you to believe. I just want you to know what Jesus said. And why has he revealed God to us? Why? Why is Jesus stressing this? He tells us in this passage. In order that by believing in him, we may not remain in darkness. But that claim is pretty heavy, right? It's one of those things that maybe sounds soft again because it's like light and dark language. It's like something you put on a Christian motivational poster in your cubicle, I don't know. But like, but this is really intense. When Jesus says that whoever believes in him may not remain in darkness, what is he saying about anyone who doesn't believe in him? That they're in darkness. Jesus claims that without him, everyone's in darkness. Again, can you imagine anybody else saying that? Anyone who doesn't believe in me remains in darkness. That's some, Jesus is making, it's the kind of stuff that you only get to say if you raise people from the dead, which he did. But that doesn't make these words less intense. Maybe they're even more terrifying because we can't just write him off as a lunatic when he has that kind of power. And we don't like to hear him say these things, right? If only Jesus would go around saying what we wanna hear. Here's what we wanna hear. If you'd be nice, Jesus will help you find a spouse. If you don't get drunk too much, Jesus will give you a good job. If you stop cussing, he'll get you an A on your test. If you read the Bible, you won't stress so much anymore. That is not why he came, friends, and that is not what he said, and it's not what he did, why why he said he did what he did. He came so that you don't have to remain in darkness. In every place where you and I do not believe and obey him, darkness remains, and though we don't like to talk about it because of the frailty of our hope or the strength of our fear, darkness sucks. It sucks. Because when you're in the dark, you don't know where the heck to go or where you are. You can't even get your bearings in the dark. How many of us are lost and not knowing who we are or where to go? And when you're in the dark, you get hurt a lot more just bumping into stuff. There's so few things you can do well in the sleep. You can close your eyes in the dark and it's like the same thing. When I was in the dark about sex, you know what I thought I needed? I thought I needed God to help me hold off until marriage. That's literally what I needed. I'm in the dark, but what what I know what I need, what I need is just for you to help me do what I already want to do. But he began to show me that women and sex and marriage and kids are not about me and they're not given into my life in order to secure my identity. That's not what they're for. As if for some reason my wife exists as the other character in my story. Are you kidding me? It's like more silence than there ever has been in this room, sorry. Uh, that's some real darkness stuff, you know what I mean? Like When I was in the dark about money, you know what I did? I didn't even look at my bank account for months. I was afraid about what was there. And, I, and, and I, I never was homeless. I was close a number of times. And I just kept closing my eyes, saying, God, just give me a little bit more money, and then I'll be fine. If you just give me a little, God, give me, I'll stop cussing. I'll stop sleeping with this girl. I'll stop, I'll, I'll go to church. I know, in the darkness, there I was. I know what I need. Just give me a little bit more money. You know what he began to show me? how much I thought money could fix all my problems and how much I lusted after it by focusing on my lack of it. I went to him for help and he shines his light in the darkness calling me out like Lazarus from the grave. You know, Jason, come out. Come out of your idolatry. Come out of your selfishness. It's dark in there. You don't even know what you need and you can't find your way out unless you let my light in. And you know what happens when Jesus starts saying things like that? Which he's saying to every single one of us in this room, Maybe we have built up so many buffers, locked him behind three doors. You can even be ignoring him coming to a place like this. Maybe this is you flipping God, a coin, not the bird, but like the coin, you know, sort of like I'm doing my good thing. So now because I went to like a thing and heard Jesus stuff, like we're good for the week, right, God? We, can, we have this amazing ability to like guard ourselves from voices and let certain voices in or something like this, right? And it's scary when we hear Jesus say things like that, like, like he does in this text. Why? Because fear creeps up. Fear that there's no hope for me or that I don't know if I can change, right? And you know what Christ says? I have power over even death. Or fear because I'm afraid of condemnation and shame and Christ says, I'm a better lover than shame, friend. I'm a better lover than shame, How about you give me your shame and I'll give you myself and the resources of my kingdom? And it's not just some man who says these things to you. This is God himself. This is why Jesus wants you to know that he is God. The one who existed before and above all else. It's not good advice and a bunch of encouragement that he gives. He gives himself. He disarms fear and hopelessness with who he is. And this is what he gives you, himself to free you from darkness. And if you're unwilling to even look or acknowledge the darkness, can I just ask you, if you're unwilling to even look at or acknowledge the darkness that might exist in your life, is it because you think there's no hope? Or is it because you fear guilt or shame? Would you hear the words of Jesus saying that he did not come to judge but to save? He's not breaking down doors and shining light into your closets because he wants you to feel bad. He wants to free you. He actually loves you and likes you. This is how he disarms this stuff. How will you respond to him? That's the question. How are you? How have you? How will you? I know spring break's upon us. It's a weird week. Some of us are going on cool adventures. Some of us are actually planning to be dumb. Uh, Some of us are hoping to literally do nothing. Like, if I can finish spring break and accomplish nothing, that's success. That's been my goal before. Like I wanted somebody to say, what'd you do? And I could be like, nothing, you know, like proud. Uh, That's, at least that was me sometimes. Okay, some of us have responsibilities, I think, that keep us from having like a pretty cool Instagram profile over spring break. Um, No matter what, though, I think all of us are hungering for something right now, having been worn down over some stuff, right? We wanna escape, we wanna stockpile, wanna let loose, we wanna indulge. Whatever it is you're up to over spring break, I know what Jesus is up to in your life. He wants to free you from darkness. And I know this is probably the one question you really don't want to be asked over spring break. But what is Jesus trying to free you from? What is He trying to free you from? Because, friend, you need more than rest, you need more than some fun, you need more than a couple pictures on your Facebook profile. You need more than a couple stories that you'll forget over time. You need more than some more money, which you'll spend quicker than you thought you would. You need freedom. And this is what he offers, freedom. What is Jesus trying to free you from? He is the one who formed you in your mother's womb and brought you forth out of nothing. And he has made this claim upon your life that apart from him, you remain in darkness. And the invitation to respond to him, it falls upon you, and it falls upon me. Though he has not come to judge, but to save, if we reject him, the words that we reject will stand in judgment over us. I know you, because you can reject him, and you can remain in darkness. That is the freedom that he has given you, and I know the reasons that you and I like the dark, but it's better in the light. It's better with him. And so my prayer is that none of us reject him, and that when we hear him calling and saying to us, even over spring break, come out into the light that we do. For it is his good pleasure to give us the kingdom, even over spring break. This is the work he's doing. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, for the light of Christ is shining upon you. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, In the midst of the heaviest kind of words that your son uses, God, um, may we hear grace. That you speak boldly to us about who we are because you know who we are. And there's freedom in knowing that we're found out and that we can't even hide. Some of us will try still. I pray that for each of my friends and for me too, um, for us to hear you say to us, come out of the dark. And may we feel and experience your light shining into that place and where we have fear and where we have hopelessness. May you combat it by reminding us of who you are even as we sing songs to you. Would you do that? May the truth that exists in these lyrics and the truth sung around us batter against the walls of our heart that we build up. And may we be free. This is why you said you've come, God free us. So please do it. May we receive you and believe you and follow you into the light. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.